Carrie, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. Tell us, you know, what is, you know, you hear this kind of term a lot. What is gentle parenting? So in a, in a nutshell, and I'm not sure that the term has been um, sort of copyrighted and, and, and defined as much as, as uh, you know, other sort of specific schools of thought, but it is, it's a, it's a philosophy of parenting that focuses on giving a child an internal locus of control as opposed to an external locus of control. So part of the ways that we do that is it is avoiding punishment, avoiding reward, um, which doesn't mean it's permissive. It's not, there are boundaries. There's And there's a distinguish between punishment and discipline. And I can kind of try and split that here for you a bit. Uh, but it is, it is of... You would, you would tend to think based off of the name and correct in thinking so that it's not, there's no corporal punishment, but there's also um, an aspect of, of not getting into punishment and reward to the best of your abilities anyway, uh, generally, and focusing instead on things like natural consequences um, and and if you need to, then logical consequences. Uh, but But mostly developing kids to be independent agents and independent actors. No. The, the the term of having an internal uh, locus co- of control or yes it's it's familiar to me because uh-huh. <laughs> because of uh, therapy and counseling and all those things not my own right. no. <laughs> uh, but can you for, for those folks that might not know what those two terms mean can you tell us a little bit more about that right so let me go back and unpack everything that I just sort of put out there because it's a lot right it is so. <laughs> And an internal locus of control is a person who their behaviors are internally motivated. Um, they have a, a system of morality and an understanding of morality that's not based off of what sort of external feedback they're getting. So, for example, the example that I use is if you are driving through the middle of nowhere and the middle of nowhere for me, like the, the epitome of the middle of nowhere is like Wyoming. Right. And I know that there's lots of middle of nowhere in Canada, but, um, that's my example. (laughs) If you're driving through the middle of nowhere, do you speed? Right. If a person has an internal locus, if they're largely informed by an internal locus control, they will say, look, I'm not going to get caught that I'm safe, that other people are safe, and that I sort of have this general obligation to be a moral and law-abiding person. And so I'm not going to go 200 miles an hour, even if I'm driving through the middle of nowhere. Whereas a person with a primarily external locus of control will be like, not getting caught, let's go, right? And that's, that's the difference. A person who has an external locus of control is motivated by praise, and they're motivated by avoiding negative consequences. A person with an internal locus of control is much more developed as an adult, and they are motivated by sort of the intrinsic value of things and by uh, being a moral person, whether or not anyone is looking. So I got to ask you this. So does this mean that when I see a Kit Kat and I have it, <laughs> I struggle, Carrie. I struggle. So, so the person nobody's looking. Does it have calories? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and even if they are looking, you know, like I anyway. That's a different episode. It's a different topic. But 
a person with an internal locus of control would not have a Kit Kat because they know, they know, um, they know about the consequences. Anyway, I'm just having fun with you. Um, I'm having fun with you. Okay, so internal lo locus of control versus external. Um, I've got some clarification on that. Now, how about you mentioned, um, you know, discipline versus punishment. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So discipline versus punishment. Um, punishment is, first of all, define sort of what punishment is, and then discipline is kind of what punishment is not, right? So punishment and reward are bookends. They are, they're, 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 they're reinforcers, okay? So you can have an incentive, which is a reward, or you can have a disincentive, which is a punishment. And so um, kind of the classic example that we, I don't know that anybody drives a donkey with a carrot or a stick, but it's, that's, that's the visual that I have, right? Like you lure the donkey to do something by dangling a, a carrot in front of its nose. It's, it's an incentive, it's a reward, or you, you, smack it on the butt with a stick and it, it, it tries to evade the stick, right? So when we are, as parents, if we are using rewards and punishments to motivate our children, whether we are motivating them to do something in order to obtain an award or motivating them to do something to avoid a punishment or to not do something, um, then what we've done is we have placed the motivation for their behavior entirely external. Mm -hmm. And it's not internal. And the, the, now, the it, word. Is it all bad? Is it all bad? It's I ineffective is what it is. In the long term, it's ineffective because what we know about punishment and reward comes from a great deal of information and a great deal of study on operant conditioning. And when you remove those external stimuli, the changes in behavior diminish and eventually disappear. And so when you have something that is gonna be outgrown anyway, so for example, potty training. If you put, my mother put a jar of M&Ms in the bathroom and the only reason anybody used the potty was to get the M&Ms, right? Um, but no kid is gonna go off to college you know, not using the bathroom because the M&Ms disappeared, right? At some point you outgrow that behavior anyway. But what if I grow up with this system where the only reason I do something is because there's something in it for me. Then I become an adult who only does stuff because there's something in it for me. And, and we uh -huh. justify this. And probably the most common example that people say, well, wait a minute, as an adult, I wouldn't go to work if somebody didn't pay me. And it's like, yeah, really good example. Now, what if I said, I wouldn't clean my house if someone didn't pay me. Now we're starting to see the pitfall. Mm -hmm. And so when you rely on punishments and you rely on rewards, eventually either you're not gonna be there and someone else isn't gonna be there to offer that reward or to threaten that punishment or to exact that punishment, or you're no longer going to have a punishment or a reward that your kid is terribly impressed with. And so this is where you get people who have teenagers and they're like, I don't know what to do. They're, you know, I tell them don't do ABC and they just will blow past me and walk out the door and I can't stop them. It's like, yes, because they're no longer impressed with your punishments and you don't have anything else to fall back on because you've not created 
a foundation that is reliant on anything other than your ability to bribe or threaten. Okay, well, I have pretty much failed to be a mother because I've used a lot of, you know, if you've had a Polish mother, <laughs> you know, eat, eat, or you're going to die. Don't get pregnant. You know, like, um, so, you know, anyway, I, uh, I, I'm very, very fascinated um, by this topic and I, I there's a lot of things that I've done wrong I'm, I'm learning and that's okay you know it's my chance to grow in, in humility so can you tell me uh, like so so if it's not punishment and like how do you have a three-year-old or a two-year-old or a five-year-old develop an internal locus of control right like it almost seems uh -huh. tell me a little bit more like you got my attention um, right <laughs> so now the question is what to do instead, right? There's what yeah, not to do exactly. and then there's what to do instead. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of a lot of effective parenting is educating yourself and being aware of what is developmentally and cognitively appropriate, okay? And so a lot of the times when people um, come to our, our Facebook group and, and or who just I run into, in general, and they have they have a, a, a discipline issue where they have, um, gosh, this behavior is just driving me crazy. Sometimes we have to break the news to them, I'm sorry, that is really irritating age appropriate behavior. And the, the remedy is time. And that is that is how kids that age behave. And it's a it's a struggle. I agree but they'll get past it, right? So sometimes it's knowing the difference between misbehavior and just annoying age-appropriate behavior because there's a lot of annoying age-appropriate behavior. We all know and that. I, and and, and I, I just want to take a minute to just pause and, and just stress that, you know, like stress that there is a lot of irritating age-appropriate behavior. Like so often, uh, like I, like a lot of younger moms, you know, well, my child is doing this and this and this and this and this. And I'm like, yeah, but it's two years old. That's what they're supposed to do, right? Right. And, and yes, there is, you know, like, I guess, you know, I, I guess there are certain things that you can do to try to contain, you know, or funnel irritating, you know, behavior in certain circumstances. But it's almost as if a lot of moms today don't want to enter into their child's childhood and let them be a child. You know, it's, it's almost as if we want to put them, you know, before a piano and having them doing concertos at six months or something like almost like not letting kids be kids, you know, like, or my off track. I think that there's a great deal of pressure that if you don't get it exactly right, that there's going to be these lifelong consequences and that there's this like limited period of time in which you can um, take advantage, you know, like it's a critical imprint period, which isn't actually a thing. Right. And so I think it just creates in moms, particularly this sense of urgency that isn't necessary. And frankly, robs you of the joy of motherhood. When I had my first, probably the best piece of advice I got from my mother is don't wish time away. There is something about every age and every stage to love and it will drive you absolutely up a wall and that's fine, but don't wish time away. 
because you can't get it back. And if you spend your time obsessing about how I just wish this was over, then you're not going to see the beautiful parts about that stage. And you're going to allow yourself to be deprived of that joy. That's uh, yeah. So, okay. So tell us, tell us. So anyway, it's like so many moms do wish that time away and then, you know, oh my gosh, it's over. And sometimes we can wish time away when our kids are 16 and then they've moved out and you think, gosh, I wish I had their, you know, dirty shoes all over the hallway. I miss those damn shoes. Sorry. I miss those shoes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So, no. so, so what we try to do is we try to, so first of all, you have to recognize what, what really are behavior issues as opposed to what is a developmental issue. And then you have to look at, I think of behaviors as sort of the tip of the iceberg, right? And the, the tip of the iceberg is the 10% that's above the water. And then the 90% of the iceberg is below the water. And the 90% is what is underlying and motivating that behavior that's just the manifestation. A behavior is just a manifestation of what's below the surface. And so we look at what's below the surface are usually things like, what are the bigger problems? Do I have a child, my kids, if my kids are misbehaving, even at this age, nine times out of 10, it's because they're hungry. And so every time they start being obnoxious, the first it's like, have you eaten? When was a lot? Go eat a banana. We don't send them to timeout. We send them to go eat a banana, right? Because it's sugar to just replenish them. Because if you're being annoying, chances are you're hungry because my kids have crazy metabolisms. But is it, is it an environmental issue? Are they well rested? Is there some other stressor that's going on in their lives? And, and you look at, when you look at the brain growth that happens zero to five, the amount of hormones that your brain has to produce in order for your body to grow that exponentially in such a short period of time, it is, it makes puberty look like nothing. Okay. And so if you take all the emotions of puberty, which most of us can more or less remember, right. And then put it into a child who has, through no fault of his own, because of developmental physiology, has limited self-control, limited ability to delay gratification, limited impulse control, limited emotional regulation, and limited language. And you say, here, deal with all the feelings, all the feelings, none of the words, have fun. And then we wonder why they absolutely lose their nut. Oh, right. And so some of this is looking at what else is going on in my kid's life. Are there disruptions? Are there things that they, is this, is there, does my kid have a need for control? Are there things that I can constructively give my child control over? And so it's, it's really problem solving as opposed to reacting to just the behavior. It's problem solving the whole of the iceberg. Because if you address that behavior, there's always going to be more behaviors as long as you have the rest of that iceberg under the water. And so that's really what we aim to do. We have, it doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. You have lots of boundaries. You, you know, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to say, you know, this, these are our family rules and these are the things that we're going to do or we're not going to do and, and uh, maintain those boundaries and enforce those boundaries. It's just that we enforce them through ways other than rewards and punishments. There's a lot of redirection. And then when there's, when, when kids are stepping out of bounds, 
you really have to do the hard work of figuring out where is this behavior coming from and what does my child need in order to change this behavior as opposed to how do I just create a big enough disincentive that my kid doesn't want to do this anymore because it's not worth it. Yeah, and, and, and what you're you know, saying has very, very profound, profound implications because um, I was very blessed with a, a dear friend and, and Mary just you know, happened to be her name. But uh, for a while there, I was kind of you know, you know, frustrated with you know, my daughter and saying, oh my goodness. And she was in kindergarten or JK or some young whatever. And I'm like, oh, you know, like she just gets like a little bit mouthy when she comes back from school and I just can't handle it before she went to school like you know she wasn't being so mouthy and you know and uh, and so at first I was like responding you know sort of top down responding to the you know you're never going to talk to me this way I never I never <laughs> my mother never talked to me that you know <laughs> and so and it just escalated it and, and made it worse and and one thing that Mary said, and now I recognize that she probably had, you know, some of this gentle uh, parenting wisdom that I didn't have and I still struggle with, but she said, you know, chances are when, you know, she's being a little bit cheeky, chances are that there's something bothering her. And so she needs nurturing and she needs, you know, affection and she needs to ever you know, head stroked and she needs like, you know, going to school is a huge transition. And, and so I thought, and, and that was that whole thing, like the idea that, you know, there's something below this behavior and rather than, you know, responding to the symptom, um, which is the, uh, the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and so, you know, I was very blessed to have Mary as a friend. And so she, she guided me on, on many occasions. Can you tell me more? You've got, you know, and I just I wanted to say hello because there, there are a couple of people here. You know, hi Kasha about it. Kasha's a, a, an amazing mom. She's been on Midday Moms. Thanks for being here, Sarah Gould. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Judith Mazona. She says you could teach a re-mom course. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it again. And this is, I always say thank God we're Catholic. When when my kids were little. I used to always pray a decade or two of the rosary asking our blessed mother to repair any damage I did by my style of parenting because I do, all right? I do. I knew I wasn't doing it right, but I, you know, anyway, so tell us more. Tell us more. So, okay. And then, and I, I think a, another sort of set of phrases that gets thrown around a lot in general parenting that I want to kind of define for people is the difference between natural consequences and logical consequences. So, Natural consequences are whatever happens as a result of, of your actions. If, if I'm being uh, careless and I drop something and it breaks, that's the natural consequence. It's I now have a broken thing, right? If, um, if, I, if I eat that Kit Kat, the natural consequence is if I have too many Kit Kats, natural consequences, my pants don't fit, right? And so um, there are, there are, there are things that happen without anybody having to do anything. Sometimes a natural consequence is a really good teacher. And sometimes the natural consequence is far too harsh to allow a child to experience it. The natural consequence of touching a hot stove, for example, is not a good way to teach a child not to touch a hot stove, right? 
Um, and sometimes it's inconsistent. The natural consequence of running into the street could be you made it into the street. Or it might be you got hit by a car and were killed, right? And so it, it's not necessarily a good teacher because it's inconsistent. Because what does a kid learn? Well, nine times out of 10, I run to the street, and I'm fine. And then that 10th time you got overbold, right? So it is an external motivator. However, it's a self-executing external motivator. It happens no matter what. There's no one there. So even if there's no one there to burn your finger, right? touching the hot stove is always going to hurt. A logical consequence is a consequence that is imposed, but it has a logical relationship to the behavior. So if you go and you uh, eat your brother's Halloween candy, a logical consequence could be, well, now you need to give him your Halloween candy, right? And that's imposed and it has a relationship to it. And so it is, those are things that, although we, we sort of we try to avoid things that are punishments and rewards. It doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't consequences to your actions, right? right? And so when you are trying to demonstrate to a child that there are in fact consequences to your action, and this is the consequence, um, what we try to focus on as much as possible is the natural and logical consequences to the greatest extent possible. And it's not always possible. And I, I want to stress this point because I think a lot of, a lot of, the stresses that women come under, that moms come under in particular, is we have a, a hypercritical culture around mothering, that if you're not doing it perfect, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And we second guess ourselves constantly, and we allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. And we are so stressed that we can't even enjoy our children, and we can't get from, we can't get the value of the vocation of motherhood that we are, we are designed to get because we're so obsessed with not screwing up. And, and we're, I think we're also obsessed with perfection, right? Like yes. Oh, absolutely. And kids are really very resilient and short of trauma, any sort of, I mean, I can identify that I think that this is based off of, and I am not a developmental psychologist. I, in the context of my professional world, I have to be educated in developmental psychology because I devise parenting schedules for children who are, you know, for, who are living between split homes. I work with respondent parents who have been identified in child protection cases. And so I have sort of ancillary exposure and ancillary knowledge to that field, but it certainly is not my area of expertise. However, sort of disclaimer there, caveat, um, barring some kind of trauma, you don't have to be perfect. So we can identify an ideal and something to strive for. And the reality is if you are just like in a, a moment where you can't make that ideal happen, it's okay. Because probably one of the greatest blessings to a child is an imperfect parent. Because that <laughs> imperfect parent gives you permission to be imperfect yourselves. If your mother was perfect, what a terrible emotional burden would that be? How would you ever measure up? Yeah, no. Whereas if your mother was flawed, 
if she admitted her flaws, because we're all flawed, of course, but if she were willing to admit her flaws and come to you and say, you know what? Oh my gosh, yesterday I completely lost my temper and I shouldn't have, and I apologize. I will aim to do better in the future. That is such a beautiful thing to model for kids. And so I don't it's want to- It's also a very Catholic thing to model, right? Oh, having, yeah. enough, having enough humility to apologize and seek the forgiveness of, uh, of your child. Now, um, someone's asking a, a question here that I think you do a really good job in, in answering. Yeah. Um, in moments where you feel very upset due to something your children did, what are some methods you can use to regulate your own emotions before responding to the situation at hand? Like, it's it's true, you know, for a lot of us that, you know, like, the, I think the road to sanctity as a mom is kind of like not reacting to every single trigger. And you're, you know, we're often triggered as moms, right? Um, and, and so what can we do in those moments to increase our kind of self-regulation? Any thoughts or I think a large part of it is looking at doing the hard work for yourself and recognizing what are my triggers and um you know I have a very good friend who was herself a victim of domestic violence and it set her off when her son would would be violent and she had to know that about herself and so she had to see it coming and kind of make a game plan for herself for what she was going to do in a calm moment. When you are in, when you're in an agitated moment, um, your brain slips into fight or flight thinking and logic goes out the window, right? So if you take the time in a quiet moment to say, okay, these are some strategies. This is what I'm going to do instead. Then you have a better chance of employing those in a fight or flight moment. So one of the things that I do to kind of recenter myself is I will take a moment, I will breathe and I will just literally, okay, y'all need to give me a minute and we're just going to sit <laughs> and I need a minute. And I remember there was a, a time, a very stressful time in my life. My dad was dying and we would, he lived about two hours away from us and we would go every single weekend. Um, my daughter and I, and stay the weekend at my parents' house to spend time with my dad while we could. And driving up there, she was two years old and she was just screaming in the car and it was a long drive and the noise and the stress, of the situation. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to pull over and I'm going to get out of the car. And I just closed the car. I pulled over into a rest stop and I just sat. No, she wasn't getting hurt. She was angry inside the car and I can't remember why she was angry, but she was angry. And I just needed that minute. So sometimes you have to be able to walk away and you have to be able to give yourself some physical space. It helps me to remember myself probably. And I am, I am absolutely wretched at quoting verses and scripture. I could never be a Baptist, but <laughs> like, <laughs> I can paraphrase. And so <laughs> my favorite is the, that which you have done to the least among you. And that, 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 that reading, because it reminds me that Jesus is in my back street, have back seat, having a fit. Ah, oh, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. You know, Jesus is refusing to eat the sandwich that he ate yesterday and said was just fine, but now <laughs> it's not good enough, right? And so those, and it just, 
okay, this is how I'm going to respond to this. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I don't get irritated and frustrated. And when I do, I, I make every effort to circle back and say, hey, I was really frustrated. I apologize. Now, I, I don't know whether this is a, a good method or not, but I used it a lot and it, it worked. Like whenever, uh, you know, if, if my two-year-old or four-year-old were kind of crying unreasonably, just it just seemed like a mood thing. I would always uh, like hold them in my arms and then I would, <laughs> I would stand in front of the mirror and bring them really close <laughs> and look at themselves. <laughs> and then they'd be like, <laughs> yeah. And it often, you know, and, and sometimes it would escalate for a while but then I wouldn't relent. I'm like, okay, you're going to keep on looking at yourself and see how crazy you look doing this. And uh, it often worked for me. It, it often worked for me. Now, uh, another little thing that um, I, I found too, that if I sat down and I started uh, praying the rosary out loud and I did it calmly, that it, I don't know, I just could feel our blessed mother. She just... And then it would, you know, settle things. The, now the other, another little, it's another little tip too. We had a, you know, a number of our most favorite Bible songs. And I found that sometimes if you just switch it up, like, you know, and everything is, you know, the tension is really high. And all of a sudden you put on one of their favorite Bible songs and all of a sudden you're laughing and giggling. Now that could be the external locus control thing. I don't know, <laughs> but. Well, no, not necessarily. Cause what you're talking about is, is a really good strategy for dealing with a behavior that's starting to escalate. So we like interrupting and escalating behavior and redirecting. Yes. And somebody has given me the, the chapter and first citation in the chat. And I love that because I'm telling you, if I didn't have, I'm using my phone as a webcam, but the Latity app is, that's my go-to. Um, but if you, if you have a behavior that's just sort of spiraling and you stop and interrupt it, and sometimes you can interrupt it by showing your kids a mirror. Sometimes you can interrupt it by playing music. Sometimes you can interrupt it with you know, whatever my son, when he just works himself up, he needs the dog to come and lick his face. And it's disgusting because the dog likes tears and snot, right? So he cries. And the dog's just... <laughs> it's like opening the can opener. They love it. It's so gross, but <laughs> it works. And whatever it is, it gives them a moment to just stop that spiraling behavior. It interrupts it. And then he can choose to go a different direction. And I noticed that as an adult, when I have wound myself up in a particular situation or a particular direction, okay, I need to stop myself. Whatever it is that works for me, whether it is, I'm going to go get a drink of water, or I'm going to take a walk around the block. I do that at work all the time. It's like, I'm going to, I need to go walk around the block. I'll be back. And, or when I was in law school, when I would just work myself into fits of anxiety while studying, my favorite study break was to go wash my hands because the library was cold and the water was super hot. And I would just take my sweet time and just very indulgently wash my hands. And it disrupted that, that anxiety and that, that was spiraling and building on itself. And then I could, okay, I've interrupted this problem. And now I can figure out a different way to move forward. And that's a really good strategy to teach kids because it's an excellent strategy to use as an adult. 
Okay, good. Phew, I was worried that. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, Carrie, I had the you know kind of privilege or the you know of speaking to you a little bit uh, the other day, and and you know you're a, you're an attorney with you know remarkable responsibilities, and um, I, I want to just like you know kind of sidetrack a little bit, and I, I want to encourage you know like it, I guess you know you're you're a full time working mom that's an attorney with this Facebook group that is like crazy busy. And I, I know too that you mentioned that, um, and, and this really, it resonated with me that in your own marriage, um, you know, that, that your husband's health is something that you've had to struggle with. And, and uh, I always kind of say that, you know, my husband is going to be a saint because he's had to deal with probably 101 different health issues that I've had over the years. And I think he probably went into the marriage and was kind of like shocked, like, oh my gosh, you know, no one told me that I was going to be in an emergency and that she was almost going to die. And no one told me that she was going to be hit by a car. No this was not in the brochure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not in all the magazines about marriage, right? Like these illnesses. Right. Um, do, do you mind just like sidetracking a, a, a little, like how, how do you deal with it all? Like how do you deal with, you know, being a full-time attorney, trying to be a gentle parent and all of this, and then, you know, dealing with, you know, your husband's, you know, real limitations and then you're a Catholic attorney and a Catholic gentle parent. Like I could talk to you forever, Carrie, you know that, right? Oh, now. yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey with that, a little bit about your, you know, because some people could say, well, you know, she's an attorney and her life is perfect. And yeah. no wonder she can be a gentle parent, right? It's like, no, 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 no. Carrie's had her crosses too, right? So anyway, tell well, us a little I more. Think, I think we all... Look, we all have our own struggles and we all come to, we come to the table um, to, with carrying our past and, and for better and for worse. And so some of us are, we're, we're given great tools that we, in childhood, that we can turn around and use as adults. And some of us have to unlearn things and, 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 and learn to do them differently and kind of leave that behind. And what I where I was when I had one newborn baby is very different from where I am with a teenager and a almost nine-year-old. It, I didn't have, when I had one newborn, I literally went through this mental exercise where I counted the number of hours that I was home with her versus where my husband was what I prefer to think of as the parent on deck, right? Who's in charge. And it was, okay. I have more than half the hours, so I'm still okay, right? Like I actually did that mental exercise of if she's awake from this hour to this, I have more waking hours. It was silly. Um, but I, I didn't have, I really made some other choices in my life because of where I was at that time. And so as they get older and more independent, then I've taken on more things that are interesting for me to do. And, and part of that is knowing what's energizing to me. I'm a very extroverted person. Like I am off the charts. I could, I could be in a trade show and I would find it exhilarating and fun. Right. <laughs> so it doesn't drain me to do 
you know, social things, it, it feeds me. And so I love to volunteer and I have discovered that these are the things that I love to do. And these are the positive things in my life. And, and I have found those and, and added them, but it really is adding things a little bit at a time and don't compare your journey to anyone else's because where you are today is maybe that person that you're looking at and whatever facade they're putting up looks looks so glamorous and looks so perfect and looks so easy and you don't know what's underneath, but you also don't know where they were 10 years ago. And you don't know where you're gonna be 10 years from now. Yes, yes, yes. Now, there's there's a couple of questions here. I wanna try to, I know I'm all over the map here. I think I have undiagnosed ADD, so. (laughs) That's okay, I can handle it. (laughs) Okay, so someone says here, I have three boys. What if one kicks his brother for natural consequence? Then one would who got kicked would be kicked, would kick back. I tell them to walk away and use their words. If it doesn't work, then to come get me. And then the one who has kicked has to come inside. Is that punishment or logical consequence? Um, I, I have a real issue too of, you know, kind of like letting boys be boys. So I don't know how that factors into gentle parenting because I sometimes think that boys have to fight, right? Like, uh, I'm not the mother that says you can't have a sword. Like, I'm like, here, have a sword. You're right. saying, of the archangel, fight, you know? So. Well, and I, I think that you have to, I think you have to respect a child's natural and innate personality because the truth of the matter is, is that we, you can, you can kind of change around the edges, but you're never going to affect, you're not going to move who a person really is at their core, right? So, and the difference between an adult who is assertive and who is aggressive and an adult who is violent is how they were taught to manage their own innate personality. It's not a difference in personalities, right? So it's a, if you've got a kid who really thinks like sword fighting is just the best thing ever, great, then you channel that in a way that's constructive as opposed to try to repressing that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you've got kids who are just getting, picking at each other and fighting with each other and aggravating, and that that sort of sounds like what that question really is getting at is I've got, I've got a kid who kicks a kid and the other kids kind of retaliates. And, and look, I am one of four kids in four years. I, I, I totally understand that dynamic. My kids are spaced further apart because my husband's disability. We couldn't have, we couldn't have lots of little kids on top of one another. But I understand that dynamic, and especially when they're all just one on top of the other. And so, probably a good strategy is to look at okay, how much of this. What I try to avoid is I try to avoid being the referee. How do I avoid making this my problem? And so what I will tell my kids when they argue, and, and I remember what we were told as kids was, here's what's, what have you done to try to resolve it? And how would you like for me to help you resolve your own problem? And so when you take ownership of their sibling rivalry, then you are putting yourself in the role of declaring winners and losers. And they are going to look to you to dish out retribution because an angry child wants retribution, darn it. 
They don't, they don't want to solve their own problems. They want to see that other kid be punished for kicking them and they're mad. And if you put yourself in that role, that's, that's what they come to you for. If you put the ball back in their court and you say, okay, how are we going to resolve this? What is your solution? Is your solution that, you know, maybe we play in separate areas? Is your solution maybe we play a different game? But what is your solution to this problem? Because if I am willing to sit here all afternoon and think of solutions, and we can sit and talk about this until you're just bored to tears and don't want to do it anymore. Um, but I can stop the playing and say, instead of playing, we're going to work on conflict resolution and then they'll solve their problems real quickly, right? Because they, that sounds terribly boring. And, <laughs> but it's, a, it's trying to help them become, take ownership of, of their own problems and empowering them to become agents in their own life, as opposed to being passive and opposed to being people who are dictated to, that they become problem solvers and they they learn how to resolve their own conflicts. And if you say, look, outdoors seems to be the common denominator here. When you're outdoors, you get crazy and you can't refrain from annoying one another and you can't refrain from fighting. So somebody's going to play inside and someone's going to play outside because obviously you guys can't share a space right now. And I really hope you can figure out how to share a space, but now is not the time. I don't think that that's punitive. I think that that's solution-based. And when my kids would argue with each other, I tell them, so for the next 10 minutes, I don't want you playing with each other. You guys need to figure this out, but take some space. You know what they wanted more than anything in the world? To play together. As soon as I told them, go, go sit on opposite ends of the house, (laughs) apart from each other for 10 minutes, they are now chomping at the bit to immediately be with each other. And then it fantastically resolved a lot of their conflicts. Yeah, actually, there's a a beautiful comment here from Irene. She says, I have six children with three boys and three girls. With all honesty, I rarely see them fighting. If there's a situation like this, kicking or fighting, I normally call them, ask them the problem and resolve it. Then I ask them to say sorry to each other, to kiss and embrace. Uh, Now they're all adult. If something happens, fighting words, they talk through it. They can see they'll be all right and they have peace with each other uh, after. And so I I really like what you're saying though, in terms of, um, you know, asking kids to dig deep and be part of the solution, right? Um, Another little trick that I don't know if it's a trick. It's it, no, it's a parenting strategy that that I use that really strategy. works. Yes. Strategy, yes, strategy, strategy. No, but um, like my my daughter's got a very strong personality. She's a leader. I have a very strong personality. I'm a leader, and so you know, often things would get exciting, and and whenever you know she did something that did cause me to struggle, and she could see that I was you know I was angry. I would often ask her to write me a letter as her consequence. I'd say, okay, why do you think I'm angry? And and if you were a parent and you had a daughter that did that, how would you respond? And, you know, of course you could only do that when they're a particular age, right? But when she was in grade six or seven, she wrote me some incredibly wise um, letters and they were self-illuminating to her as she wrote them. So like, 
I took myself out yeah. of the situation, asked her to write about it. And then sometimes I would see my own behavior in a different light because she kind of had journaled about it and I was given permission to read it. And then other times she could say, oh, if I had a daughter, you know, I wouldn't want her having coolers or, you know, so right. on and so forth. So, um, so anyway, that, that's a little something that, that what? What I, what I really like about that is that you are in, in, in doing that, that activity encourages your daughter and sort of puts her in a position where she needs to think as somebody else. And she needs to kind of view her situation from the outside and maybe have some insight. Um, and I think that that's really, that's a valuable skill. And there's a lot of adults who can't step outside of their own skin, who can't see something from somebody else's perspective. And I think that that's a really important skill to have when we learn how to navigate other people. Um, one of the things that I have done with my daughter as she sort of entered into adolescence is we have a shared journal that well, I've sort of neglected it lately, but we have <laughs> a shared journal that went back and forth so we could have these conversations because it's not one of the things that I think people really need to be cognizant of is when you say, I'm doing this thing as a consequence, that thing becomes inherently undesirable. And so when you say, you know what, you have to go clean your room. Well, I mean, don't you want them to clean their room? Like, isn't that a, I mean, in that, in that a positive thing, like you're, ah. you're, you're in trouble. You need to get rid of some of your toys. You have too many toys. You're in trouble. Okay. Well now good behavior is rewarded by hoarding and bad behavior is reward is, is punished by, you know, reasonably taking care of your things. And so that kind of activity and insight is wonderful for helping to resolve conflict and helping a child to learn someone else's perspective and see things from an adult perspective. Um, but it's something that I would encourage people to consider doing proactively and just say, hey, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from. So let me th- speak as you and you speak as me or you know, let me write as you and you write as me. And let's see how much we can figure out how to understand each other, not necessarily as a consequence for a particular action, because then you don't want that to become an undesirable activity. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I have another question for you. Um, yeah. I, and I, you know, I on like, I don't know whether this is right or wrong, but this is what I did. And it, uh, I'm, I'm just curious what you think. Um, I kind of have this kind of, I don't know, belief, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, that many, many moms right now, or many parents right now, many schools right now are like burdening their children with too much too soon, right? Like my kids would come back from school and it's like, oh, global warming, you know, they'd come back, oh, terrorism, they'd come back, you know, the grade five mothers are just drunk drivers, right? Like, it's just like, it felt like, oh my gosh, like she's in grade six and already this week we've had a drunk driver, we've had global warning, we've had, you know, like, all of these huge burdens put in, like she's five, she's six, like, she, you know, like, and, and so one strategy that I used um, is, is, you know, is I'll tell you when you're older, 
right? Like if I had a fight with my husband, like I didn't, they don't need to know all of the details about this, that, or, or the other. Or if, you know, there was some trauma and some extended family member, like unless it was pertinent to our daily life and they, I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you when you're older, right? Like I, I didn't believe in burdening our children, you know, with too much too soon and like, and, and mm -hmm. I, I don't know, like, like trying to create a holy, healthy, innocent childhood rather than informing them about every single thing all the time so that they would be in the know, you know? Right. Um, and I, I think that there certainly is such a thing as, as too much information, um, especially before a child is emotionally mature enough to handle it. And, and there are certain components of emotional maturity that are, are, they are physiological brain development issues. It's not happening earlier. It doesn't matter what you do. It's like, you, you know, walking, your kid is not going to walk at three months old, no matter what you do, right. You can do as much tummy time as you want to do. They're not walking at three months old, right. There's certain, there's certain cognitive skills that they're just not going to get earlier. However, there's, there's, so if you, if you give a kid information that they're not equipped to, to process, then, then yeah, that just creates stress. And there's no real good way to resolve that stress because there's nothing that they can do that's constructive or positive about it. But there, it's not just a black or white either, or there's also, there's this, this, this ability to give kids information that is age appropriate and, and define it in such a way that is age appropriate. And so we have never had a, um, we've never had a need to tell our kids that, you know, that topic is off limits. Now, if they wanted to ask questions that I felt were just entirely too private, like if they wanted to know about my sex life, I would say, no, that's, that's an off. We're not having that conversation. I'm not willing to discuss that. And I would be perfectly within my rights to maintain that boundary. They don't ask. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's most we have been able to do has been to frame things in a way that is age appropriate and, and temper that with, you know, this is a problem that's really resting heavily on your mind. What is something you can do about it? What is a positive change you can make? If global warming is really, you know, resting on your heart, then, then what, what can we do that makes you feel like you're not just overwhelmed by this problem that is the awareness of a problem that is too large for you to solve? What could you do to become a problem solver? And I think that the, the empowering of kids to do something, and even if we as adults know that it's not actually that productive to do the thing that you think is productive, they still, what they're learning from that is, I can take these things that are causing me anxiety and I can do something about it because what is the most anxiety provoking is that feeling of powerlessness. And so to me, the antidote is empowering and in a very positive and constructive and age appropriate way. Okay. Now, how does Catholicism kind of, because I just looked at it, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's three o'clock. What happened? <laughs> it's like, I still didn't uh, talk about a whole bunch of things I want to talk about and we're you know going to wind up soon. But how does this all sort of come together for you through a Catholic lens? Um, can you tell us a little bit so, about that? Yeah. 
for me, I think that the, so vocation, generally speaking, is, is, it's something that we do. It's a role that we take on that allows us to know God, right? Like in its simplest boiled down form, that's what a vocation is. That allows us to have, it is, it is, it is a, it's a, it's a work that we have in our life that, that fosters a relationship with God. And so if I look at motherhood, that's our mission, right? Is to make sure right. that that our children know that God exists and that we're to be enter into a relationship, right? Right. So if I look at motherhood as the vehicle for my relationship with God, then my children are that in that moment, that's Jesus in the back seat throwing an ever-loving fit in the middle of a traffic jam, right? Like that's and so I I also have to look at I am their conduit as well. And as parents, we are the stand-in for our children for so many relationships, right? We are modeling to them constantly. We're modeling to them how to be a spouse. We're modeling to them how to be an employer. We're modeling to them how to be a neighbor. We're modeling to them how to be a parent, how to be a pet owner, how to whatever, right? We are the stand-in for so many relationships that our children will have throughout their lives, including we are the stand-in for their relationship with God, that our relationship with God is phrased as a parental, it's God the Father. It's a, it's a paternal concept of who God is for a reason. And that's why the family, why the domestic church is the domestic church. And the family is the model of the relationship of God to his, his church. And so when I, when I look at it from that perspective, I look at what where do I need to be so that this is my husband in the background, where do I need to be, where do I need to have them be so that they can, um, as adults go through, uh, uh, the process of saying, okay, I can take ownership of this, this flaw. I can, um, I can, I can recognize my faults. I can try to correct my faults. Like for me, the model of parenting is the sacrament of reconciliation. I have to have some insight into my own behavior. I have to have insight into what was the underlying motivation for my behavior. If I go in and I say, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I confess, you know, that, that I got angry. Okay. Why'd you get angry? right? If it's going to be a meaningful change in your behavior, you have to do that level of analysis. So I want to model that for my kids. I'm not just sitting there handing out acts of penance, right? Mm-hmm. I'm saying, great, let's identify what was the near occasion for your sin. Mm-hmm. Why did this happen? And mm-hmm. how do we affect this, affect your behavior? How do we address this why so that we can look at making it not happen again. So that rather than, you know, my children looking at, gosh, is anybody here to get me in trouble? That they look at, okay, here's how my behavior, I am now aware of how my behavior affects other people and how my behavior affects my relationship with God and how my behavior, you know, really matters even when nobody's looking because God's always looking. Right. Um, and then how do I fix that? How do I rectify it? And how do I positively change myself and work towards something that is much more idealized in my behavior, uh, knowing that I will never attain perfection and I will always be a work in progress and that's okay. 
and and so um, I did want to just, you know, I I often tell people that I, I never went to confession as often as I did once I became a mom, right? And you know, I always say that okay, our children bring up all this kind of like stuff in us. And we recognize our weaknesses. We recognize our strengths. And when I when when a, when a child brings something up for me, and I run to the sacrament of reconciliation, and I love them so much that I want to overcome that darkest side of myself, that that's actually forging a, a supernatural bond because maybe there's nothing else in the world that would have motivated me to overcome that part of myself because I don't. Uh, love anyone the way that I love, you know, this child, right? And so yeah. that that journey is, uh, is, a, is a gift. So, um, and as your children, you know, grow older, there are other parts of yourself that are triggered, right? And, and so it's this, it's a process of sanctification and, and going to, um, you know, the, the sacrament of reconciliation often is, is, is something beautiful. Um, one website that I used to visit a lot for developmental kind of, and I don't know if, whether you consider it a good website or whether, whether you could recommend other ones, but I was on it like often and it, it's a zero to three.com. Have you ever heard of that website? I have heard of it. I've not visited it to be honest. So I'm not, I'm not honestly sure whether I'm not, I don't, I don't know how, and I haven't, you know, my, my kids now are 25 and 26. So I don't know how it's changed or whether it has any other agendas now, but uh, can you recommend any good developmental websites or? So no. And it's, <laughs> I, I get asked this question a lot and it comes up a lot on the Facebook group. So what should I read? I don't actually read parenting books. I, and, and it's because like, and, I end up that the, the materials that I have are are more um, kind of industry material. Like I think if everybody sat down and read the DSM five, that would be good information. Nobody wants to sit down and read the DSM five, um, and so I I really I don't necessarily have a go to um, for kind of developmental psychology. I mean, I think that you can, there's a, there's just a wealth of information and there's a wealth of data that's out there about, you know, the, the early childhood education and, and developmental psychology. And so, and I know that there are good, good resources designed for lay people. I just don't actually know what they are. (laughs) Now, a couple of people here are asking how they can find your Facebook group. So what, do they were you know can you key it in or can you tell us what it is yeah. or? so if you go on facebook and you just do a search for gentle parenting catholics um and and if you you can request to join um and there's a couple questions so that i know you're not a bot because i got sick of looking at everybody's profiles and trying to figure out is this a real human or not um and uh you know, that's it. You're, you're welcome to the group. Um, it is, there's a, it's really hard to give people because if you're not going to, to rely on a system of punishments or rewards, it's hard to give one size fits all advice. You really can't give one size fits all advice. Oh, someone's asking if I could write it down. I'm accessing this from a phone. So the answer is no, not without losing my camera, but maybe you could Dorothy. Um, but uh, there's, yeah, there are I'll, people. 
I'll post, like if you're friends with uh, me on Facebook, Dorothy Polarski, yeah. I'll post it on um, my Facebook page. The other thing I can do is I usually send uh, probably too many emails out. Anyway, I send uh, a fair number of emails so I can include the link in one of our next emails. Um, I have no problem with, with doing that. And if you want to, uh, yeah, so I'll do that. Anyway, it is, it is 312. So I want to, first of all, Carrie, thank you for joining us today. Um, I know we could go on and on and on. Um, and it's, it's just so beautiful. Thank you for your yes. You know, there's, if you didn't say yes, we wouldn't have all this, you know, incredible sharing and, and learning. And so thank you for your yes. I want to thank everybody here. Those of you that have joined us, um, I really need everyone's help in getting uh, information out about our Dynamic Women of Faith Conference. It's dynamicwomenoffaith.com. You know, it's going to be a fantastic, fantastic day. I've invited um, Carrie to, to come. I don't know if she can join us, but I've asked her to join us. But uh, we have the Sisters of Life are going to pray the rosary with us. We have Dr. Carrie Gress, um, the, the author of um, Anti-Mary Exposed and Toxic Femininity. Then we have Dr. Josephine Lombardi. You've got yours truly, uh, you know. We have a lot of exciting changes to talk about in the mom's ministry and they're positive changes, they're growth changes. So anyway, and I also wanted to say that we really love hearing from you, okay? So if you send an email, I can get it forwarded to, to Carrie. I can't promise she's gonna respond 24 seven to all of them because of course she's a full-time attorney. She's a mom. Um, she's got a lot on her plate, but between the two of us, we, we should be able to muster up some kind of reply. It's great hearing from you. And I always like to end with, <clears throat> I'm so glad we had this time together. Just to have a laugh and sing a song seems we just get started. And before you know it, comes a time we have to say so long. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Maureen is saying, Carrie, come back to speak. If we're lucky, she'll come back to speak. If we're lucky, she will. Uh, yeah. I love chatting with her. Um, please send the ministry emails. We love hearing from you. We love knowing whether you've benefited or not. Because I don't know, I'm an extrovert too. And I don't know how you feel, Carrie, but sometimes like you're giving and you're giving and, and you wonder, is this making any difference, right? So it's always great to hear, you know, that we're making a little bit of a difference. Uh, thank you, Carrie, for joining us. Um, to your family. Thank you. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll pray a rosary for your intentions tonight and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank okay. you. Okay. Bye everybody. Great chat. Bye -bye. With you. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye.